to the Momnificent Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids. We're going to show you how to connect with your child and help them even in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Momnificent Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. David, welcome to Momnificent. Where are you enjoying Momnificent from today? Thank you. Well, as an educator, my first move is always guilt. So looking at the weather reports over the last month or so, I'm in Palm Springs, California, and it's like mid-70s and sunny, and I'm in heaven. I'm so jealous. I'm going there one day. I keep speaking it out. It's in my future. I'm coming to where palm trees are soon. I've lived half I lived half my life in cold weather half the year and I'm like, I'm so done. Oh, so gosh, darn it. Enjoy. Okay, are you doing something nice this afternoon in the sun? Like what are you doing today this weekend? Anything fun? Yeah, we're gonna go out on the bike ride uh, to downtown Palm oh. Springs and uh, maybe in the afternoon with a cocktail. I'm not gonna lie, I'm taking a day. Good. This is actually the high point though. I've been looking forward to talking with you for a oh. while. I am so excited about this. Okay, all right, well, what's one thing you've done recently, because I love asking this question, that you haven't done for a while that just brings you joy? <laughs> what a wonderful question. Um, I've been so immersed, and and me saying that I'm taking even part of a Saturday is like a once in a blue moon special occasion, because um, I don't need to tell you or any of the moms or educators or anyone recently what the last couple of years have been like and what we've all been taking on as a result. So between teaching and parenting and trying to hold things together for literally everyone that I come into contact with, whether they're a client or a friend, um, we've all just been surfing so much. Um, but I realized that I hadn't been scratching my own creative itch. And so, you know, I, I published a professional book on open source learning last year. I was really proud of that. Um, and you know, we're on a podcast, so I guess I better, uh, Roman and Littlefield published Academy of One. And, um, that wasn't really like the thing that I felt like I needed to do. So I'm working on a novel. I started drawing with my daughter again, and we created a line of greeting cards, uh, some pandemic related, but some just goofy. And I started a podcast. Um, there's going to be a podcast on open source learning. But this podcast was really just for fun. Um, I took public works of literature that are taught as classics in school. And as a result, because they're in school, they're super boring because you can't talk about any of the really juicy stuff that makes people people, whether that's racism or sex or any of the other stuff that would actually make them interesting. And so I created the Lit AF podcast and Lit AF um, you know, this is a family podcast, but that was actually a term that was gifted to me by one of my own students. So I'm sort of like the Energizer Bunny. So you ask me like, what's one thing that you've done recently that's creative? And I think I just rattled off about eight, but that's just sort of how I roll. And tell our audience a little bit about you, kind of like what you do today, this month <laughs> in your life. <laughs> we won't go back in history because I know you got to, I mean, unless you want to touch on that, go ahead. I'll let you just share, share, give a pre brief, like one to two minutes, uh, who you are, what you're about. Well, if there are any career counselors in the audience, I'm probably your nightmare. Um, I, I went straight through, you know, from high school, I was one of those kids who I was way more serious in high school than I am now. 
Um, and I took it upon myself to make sure that I could attend college and pay for it. So I was all business and started UCLA as a high school senior in the honors program and didn't like school really, but loved learning and saw learning as a path to my own opportunity and as a way to a life that I really wanted to live. And so I got my BA, my master's degree and my PhD from UCLA, taught there for 11 years, uh, worked as a management consultant and then started my own firm before I was 30. And after 9-11, I was talking with a lot of my grad students at UCLA and my clients in the private sector, most of whom were really accomplished, successful people. Um, to become a grad student or to become an entrepreneur or an executive, you've got to have a lot on the ball. And privately, everyone was telling me a version of the same story, that they had to recover from their K-12 education just to survive in the world much less thrive in their professions or in their relationships. And that combined with 9-11 really, you know, it affected a lot of people and it changed the course and the trajectory of our country. Um, but for me at that point, I just, there were some bells that rung that I could not unring. And then I was helping a friend with a nonprofit um, working with Los Angeles Unified School District and we were in a meeting with a principal. I think he brought me along just as sort of like academic window dressing. And the principal was joking with me, but he was also serious that academic researchers really don't understand what happens in schools when they're not giving tours. And the more I thought about it, the more I started thinking about authors I really respected, like Jane Goodall or Hunter S. Thompson, who took anthropology to a different level by joining the tribe in order to get the story. And so I decided to take a leave from UCLA and from my consulting, and I decided to teach high school English for what I thought was going to be a year or two. And I promise I'll wrap up the story in a moment, but the interesting stranger than fiction part of this is that I was all set to go back to my work. And a young man walked into my class. Now I was at the third largest campus by enrollment in the country. We had almost 6,000 students on a three track year round calendar in Los Angeles with all the urban horribles. So the 12 foot concertina wire on top of the chain link, uh, the LAPD substation on campus, the childcare for the students' kids. And this young man walks into my classroom carrying a book, which was in itself unusual. But the book was The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. And I literally dropped all of my pretense and just wagged my finger and said, come over, where did you come from? And it turned out that he had actually forged his parents' signatures on the paperwork and called them from the airport in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia to let them know he was coming to California. So he learns English, taught me a little Mongolian, passes my course, graduates, and then invited me home for dinner. So I wound up in Mongolia, Tibet, and Western China with this young man and his family for almost a month. And talk about bells you can't unring. So when I came back, you know, I had been using technology the way a lot of people were at that time. An excuse removal system, a way to automate certain functions, save paper. But as I got further into the internet, and my own formal computer training ended in like the early 80s on a TRS-80 with like a cassette deck backup, right? I'm 52 years old. I knew nothing about what was emerging at that time in terms of web 1.0, much less 2.0. But it didn't take a rocket scientist, at least it was natural to me, to see the collaborative potential for all of this, 
the curative potential for all of this. And I mean that in two ways. I mean, restorative, like curative in terms of cure what ails you. You have access to everyone on the planet who knows what you want to know. You have access to all the creative tools that you could possibly imagine. But I also mean curative in the sense that we can curate, we can create portfolios and people don't automatically land in creator roles. Those Apple commercials are delicious, but they're kind of a false promise. School effectively was crumpling up the computer age into a shape that looked like an electronic textbook. So between the Mongolia and Asian experience and my own thinking about technology, and I'm an English geek. I was an English geek way before I taught English. So technology is based on the old Greek root of techni, which doesn't mean tools. It means cleverness in using tools. So when I think about all the different ways, you know, they say that the Bible is accurate if you throw it at someone at close range, all the different ways that you can use an object. And we weren't tapping even close. So I made a long story longer, but my path eventually landed me to teaching in a lot of different arenas, giving TED Talks, being a thought leader-ish kind of guy and all that. But more importantly, I still work with students and people who help them because we're still at sea. The pandemic just exacerbated and made manifest all of the things that we were suspicious of all along whether that was the inequality of access or the inequality in treatment or all of this false dichotomy about face-to-face -face versus virtual. Um, it's almost all PR and it's very difficult to separate the learning from the noise. So in the rest of our conversation, now that I'll be quiet and finish my long-winded introduction, hopefully I'll be able to contribute to that for your listeners. I love that story. And I'm so glad that you, you added that story of the student in Mongolia. Um, and I'm going to have to have you back on because there's so much more to that story that I would love people. I think people would really enjoy hearing. Here I'm like tearing up because it's so beautiful to talk to people because you don't always find people who have done something and, and done something so different than what they started in because they saw something that they were like, oh, okay, fine. Let me experience that. All right. I will be boots on the ground and let's see what it's really like. And so when you went into that education system, when you went into the, that California school that you described, did you start teaching the curriculum as curriculum in our system in education is and was? And then did something shift at that point into what, what you're now going to talk about in the next questions about the open source learning? Or did you start with 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 that? Um, I don't like jump the gun, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like, did you did you teach? Did they give you a book and curriculum you had to use or were you able to do your own thing? And then because that's my question, like, what is your opinion of our education system? Mm -hmm. There's a lot there. So let me try and pick that apart. Um, thank you for that question, first of all, about how was it for me when I showed up? Because you just brought me back to memories that I really haven't reflected on in a long time. We're talking, this is now 2004. And my very first impressions were having the conversation with the principal and then calling the school and finding that he had moved on. So initially, when he asked me to come teach, you know, my first response Oh, that principal who asked you to come had moved on? Yeah. So he oh. had he, he basically asked me to come teach. He said, you know what? I'll give you a position right now. And I thought, okay, cool. Now, remember, my orientation at that point was consulting in the private sector. And when people say they're going to do something, they just do it. So I was like, hmm. At the same time, <laughs> my, my own thinking, I'm going to say this, and I hope I'm not sorry later, but I, I feel like just being honest about it because teaching is such a tricky profession. There is so much wonderfulness 
about that moment when you get to share with a person of any age, any kind of aha, it really is like a, it's better than any drug. Um, at the same time, we're all watching this slow moving dumpster fire of how teachers are treated in our culture, how they're compensated, how we are compensated, I should say. And so, you know, with all of this turnover and all of these conditions, um, I wasn't expecting, but I wanted the real experience. So the first thing that happened was here I am thinking, no, I don't want to teach. I get curious about a lot of things. I get curious when I'm sitting on an airliner about what would happen if I turn the red handle, but I'm not going to do it. Um, but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, if I really want to understand and tell a different kind of story. And I was already annoyed with all the quantitative research in education because it's very difficult to talk about validity or reliability in a meaningful way when you're talking about such a unique temporary experience as learning. And I really wanted the qualitative experience. I wanted the story that surrounded all of this. Um, so by the time I made up my mind, I said, I call him in a couple of weeks, he had moved on. I got passed from, you know, on hold to, from person to person, uh, finally got in touch with somebody, but I, even though I had a master's and a doctorate, and even though I had been recognized in the congressional record for education and all this other stuff, none of it mattered. I applied to Los Angeles Unified School District as a, just an average anybody. And I'm proud to say that because I had to earn my keep and prove myself in the same way as anybody else. And I have ever since. But what came up for me was, you know, when I had to take all of these exams and I had to do like, I was supposed to go and do a teacher training program. And I've never been so proud as when I got a letter telling me that I had been expelled for failing to show up. Cause I just waited it out. I mean, I know how to play bureaucracy for crying out loud. I was a consultant, but in that moment, even that like helped me understand why some students, because I didn't understand how anybody could fail. That's just not my nature. But I started to understand how students feel disenfranchised, devalued, and otherwise abused by a system that doesn't care about them, counts them so that it can make money internally. And when you ask me, what do I think of the education system? I really want to make an important distinction here. I love everybody, even the people who give me reasons to remember what I don't want to be or don't want to do. So when I think about the people in the education system and I think about all of the socialization that makes them them, you're like a friggin' unicorn. Most administrators, I call stars because whatever light and heat you experience from them were generated a long time ago in a galaxy far away. Because since they had the good idea of, hey, this is what I'd like to do for a profession, they've had to go through how many curricula, how many tests, how many corrections to say, no, that's not how you say it. Let me acculturate you and make sure you say things this way because that's how we do it. And all the paperwork later to become an assistant principal, a dean, an assistant principal, a principal, a director, an assistant superintendent. By the time someone's a superintendent, it's a miracle they're putting sentences together that make any sense for people not in that bureaucracy. So I really do give them, I mean, it's a backhanded way of saying it, but I do give them a lot of credit. Um, our system was built for a time and a culture and an economy that simply no longer exists. So the Carnegie seat hour 
the curriculum to get into professional schools in the Northeast or private universities in the Northeast. The predictability of what jobs, what sectors are going to exist when today's elementary students graduate, all that's gone. And so the social contract of, I know Mrs. Jones is a difficult personality, Billy, but if you just play the game, you'll be better off than your parents. Well, that doesn't exist anymore either. So now we're in a system where the information is suspect, the authority figures who know sometimes less about the culture and the tools that people use is suspect. The rift between teachers and parents and administrators has created, you know, it's, it's not only divided we fall, it's also breaking ranks in front of the troops. It's not supporting students in ways that they can feel any consistency in temperament or cohesiveness in approach. And when they don't see people disagreeing and sustaining relationships, we can't really expect them to understand how to express themselves or have an argument, not as a conflict or a contest, but as a search for truth that can actually unify people and give them better information. So uh, long way around, today's education system may have been built for a long time ago, but today it's not meeting the needs of the people who need it most. And then when you stepped into that classroom in California, was that when you started playing around with this idea of this open source learning? I gave that name later. Um, the day that I stepped into the classroom, um, I walked into what was a converted auto body shop. The students, oh, and, and so all of that bureaucracy around getting the job and, and not getting told what I was gonna get paid. My first paycheck, uh, thank God I had been a consultant and had another job because my first paycheck I didn't get for a month after I started working and it was on the eve of Thanksgiving weekend and it was for like $69 and 17 cents. So it, it, like every part of this was awesome. So I mentioned that just because you can't really take those things apart. People like to have those conversations in different rooms, but they're all mixed together when you're talking about a person who's doing a job and providing for themselves or a family. Um, so I walk into this converted auto body shop and we're talking like chain link on the inside, a lock stairway that went up to a second floor that I never saw because uh, I didn't have a key and wash tubs that were full of old computer equipments, um, you know, old hard drives, old monitors. And uh, the place was just sort of a graveyard and I didn't know what I had walked into. And the students, because I, I didn't get fingerprint cleared and I actually called the secretary of state in California myself. You know, that was the other thing. Here I was coming in and I was still taking calls from, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's economic committee to facilitate a meeting that I committed to before I decided to do this stuff. I'm taking those calls on my cell phone while I'm standing on this campus. And the biggest issue for me in the beginning was my own ego. I really had to let go of everything else I had been before I walked through those gates in order to be present, fully present which is a whole lot easier said than done with whatever was going on there. And when you walk by six people, none of whom say good morning because they're in their own pain or they're in their own world, or they just don't like the way you look because you're a middle-aged looking white guy. Um, you go through some changes. It was a really fascinating process for me. And I'm so grateful 
that eventually when I did go to Asia, I started to understand mindfulness from a whole different perspective. But those first few weeks, so I walk in, the students, because I had taken so long to get fingerprints and all that stuff, they had been sitting there for a month and a half uh, with substitute teachers. They had watched the movie Remember the Titans like eight, nine, 12 times. No one could remember. And there were copies of, um, oh, it was a Stephen Crane novel. I think it was called Maggie of the Streets. And there were like a bunch of copies and, and someone from the book room came and threw a bunch of blue and white cards at me and said, do this. And I was like, uh-huh, cool. So I bought myself some time. That very first day, I started a practice of doing journaling at the beginning of class on a topic that I put on the whiteboard just because I needed to buy some time. What was the class you were teaching? Uh, that was an American literature class, I think. It was a literature class of some kind. And I've literally taught from grades 9 through 12, English language learners to AP. In the state of California, if there's a course that I haven't taught in the English language, it's because it's newer than me. Um, but I was the guy that people, once they realized that nothing was burning down in the rooms where I stood, uh, I got everything that nobody else could handle. So whether it was the tragically bright on the AP end of the spectrum or the honors end of the spectrum, or whether it was, you know, whatever. So I routinely had three or four preps a semester. And uh, that's fun for me. Um, because to answer the other part of your question, no, I didn't use a textbook. Um, most recently in my classrooms before the pandemic, uh, I had one small bookcase to comply with the law that said there have to be access to textbooks. And I put a little sign on that that said the museum of the way things used to be. And then we read all the good stuff. That's so great. Wait, and so you were about to tell us, like, what happened? So ha, ha, what, what did you start doing? Or, or are you going to tell the story where you told the kids, this is the one way we can do it. You tell me when we're going to do it another way, and I'll come back in the room? Yeah, so. <laughs> or, or were you going to say something else? That definitely evolved. So the Stephen Crane moment, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, literally, okay. I literally, hell did I know about Stephen Crane? And by the way, the book sucked. I didn't, I mean, I read like two pages, and I was like, geez, no wonder nobody wants to read this. So because I had no idea who Stephen Crane was, I went on, what do you, what do you do? You go on your phone and you look him up. And then I realized, oh, wow. So this kid was born with a silver spoon and decided to slum it so that he could get the real experience. Oh my God, I'm living the Stephen Crane dream. But actually he screwed up because he was sleeping in warehouses and got sick and I think died of pneumonia or tuberculosis or something horrible. Um, but he was writing about prostitutes and immediately when I asked the students, like, hey, does anybody else want to be here besides me? And they were like, F no. And I said, makes perfect sense. So what the hell makes a guy like Stephen Crane, or for that matter, a guy who looks like I do, want to show up in a room like this? And they were like, beats us. We've never been to the beach. And you seem like you're nuts. And a teacher has never said that to us in our career. Right. And... uh you know, I want to be polite because this is your podcast, but I love cursing. And uh, I've got, you know, I, I've probably made more friends, young and old, in my life because I'm half moron. doesn't matter. I have a PhD. I just like being me out loud. And in that, there's reciprocity. So, yeah, who would want to be? You would have to be a psychopath to want to spend your days in a room that looked like that. So, how do we go about transforming this into a room where we like to live? 
And keep in mind that while I'm having these conversations in my first day or two, I'm listening to <laughs> I'm listening to young people talk about the benefits of Hennessy versus whatever other uh, you know rock that they've been drinking. I'm listening to you know, one of the first conversations I remember was a kid saying, you can't work when you're on welfare and having those kinds of debates in, in the doorway. And while I'm listening to this stuff, in rolls Abraham Cabrera, who I'll never forget. Um, he's no longer with us, but Abraham rolls in in his wheelchair. Uh, he had muscular dystrophy, could only move his thumbs and his head. Uh, but he's got this huge jack-o'-lantern of a head with green hair. And his first question is, hey, mister, can we have a party? And it was like a three-ring circus as every teacher who spent a day in a classroom knows, you know, you go through all of these pre-service programs and they take you through the sequential curriculum. They take you through the sequential. Here's what you do. Line up for the drinking fountain. Good luck. Nobody ever teaches you what it's really like and how to handle what really shows up that day. Right. So I'll finally get around to answering your question. What I did was <laughs> I, I looked at them and I said, we need to break stuff. So all this in the room that's been left here is junk. Let's break that and see if there's anything worthwhile. So we made kind of a maker space out of our own little junkyard. Some of it was sculpture, some of it was functional, I didn't care. We had conversations around Maggie of the Streets and read it when we felt like it and skimmed it and did some other stuff. But along the way, we started using the internet as I mentioned earlier. And when I decided to continue after that trip to Asia, as opposed to just going back to kind of the land of the living as I was thinking about it then. I realized that I needed to give the series of practices that I had begun some sort of a name and I needed to codify this enough so that someone who wasn't me could see themselves in it, not to necessarily do what I did or talk the way that I talked, but to see how they could adapt it for their personalities or their subject matter or their community. And at the time, I had friends that were active in the open source software uh, movement. But to me, it was more, I, I use the term open source learning more because I mentioned I'm a geek and I was thinking about thermodynamics. We tend to set up traditional schooling in these very closed environments. You have to have a pass to get on campus. You don't even talk to the next group in the room right next door. So if a student wants to learn how to fly an airplane, and one of mine did, I'm not the best person to guide that process. We got to meet you a pilot. And we did. And three months later, I was in the backseat of a Piper Tripacer airplane. That is my idea of normal. So when you ask me about when did I start teaching classes by, you know, if I stand up as an adult, the only person with the agency and the authority to stand up without permission. And I say, here's what we're going to do. It may be a really great idea, but it's still not their idea. So as I started thinking about this and I moved to a school district in semi-rural California, Santa Maria, California, which if anybody knows Santa Maria, you probably know it for Santa Maria tri-tip or strawberries, but it's halfway between Los Angeles and uh, Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay area. And most Californians don't know it unless they've driven through it on the 101. It was perfect because it was far enough away from Santa Barbara and far enough away from San Luis Obispo that I could break all sorts of stuff. And the very last people to care about it were the people in my own school district. 
I brought it to them last because I, I really do believe you can't be a prophet in your own land. I was never out to sell stuff. I was never out to be right. Um, and so I loved having the autonomy to explore. And in that exploration, there was absolute gold because instead of starting a class by saying, here's the syllabus, do likewise. You were right earlier. I said, you know, you're all familiar with the 30 pound textbook approach to things. And you've all been through how many first day speeches from perky people who tell you it's all gonna be different about two weeks before it's pretty much all the same. So if we're gonna do this differently, we need a buffet. Here's some things I've done. Here's some ways I've talked about it. Here's what I call it. And you may not like it. You may wanna do the traditional thing. You actually may have a better idea than anything I've just shared. And then you're right. I did what the California Department of Education uh, Ed Code says I shouldn't do. And I said, if I stay in here and watch you make a decision, you're gonna be nervous and the observation is gonna change the phenomenon. I gave a little speech on quantum mechanics. And then I said, I'm gonna be on my phone. And I walked out of the room, closed the door behind me. So on the first day of every semester since, I've been on the stoop hanging out. But the thing is, I've never waited more than two or three minutes. I taught them about consensus. I told them how hard it is to share decision-making and come to a unified moment that has everyone's not only acquiescence, but everyone's enthusiasm. And there hasn't been a class yet that's taken more than a few minutes, even though that's the only job I gave them for the semester. That's amazing. And what did they say at the end of their year with you or the end of their class? Well, that brings me to lit AF. <laughs> um, at the end of every year, I typically thank them. Um, well, not typically, I do thank them because I'm very grateful. Um, you know, we have laws that require people's physical presence on campus. And what we saw during the pandemic was what every teacher and administrator already knew, that people's bodies may show up in the classroom, but people's minds are really their decision and they're all over the place. And when learners decide that they're going to be more self-disclosing or they're going to be more mindful or present or they're going to take a risk, which, you know, every little kid, it, if you've ever read Orbiting the Giant Hairball by Gordon McKenzie, it's a wonderful little book. And he tells a story in the beginning about going to schools as a sculptor. Gordon McKenzie was an executive with Hallmark and he called himself a creative enigma. But he also was a sculptor who made animals out of metal and went to schools to talk about it. And at the beginning of every assembly, he would say, hey, who here is an artist? And he would describe how, you know, the assemblies all go the same. I don't know about your school, but you do them in order, right? K1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Right. So the kindergartners, how do you think they responded? Oh, so many of them. Oh, my God. Everybody was all like bananas. Yeah. But grade by grade, the hands yes. got lower and the responses got quieter. Yeah, I believe it. And you know, what's the research? We ask something like a, 100 or 200 questions a day as five-year-olds. Uh, and then we, we become aware of being observed. We become insecure. We become ego-based and we stop. So. Same, same with laughing. They, they say like five and six-year-olds laugh some like astronomical. I'm going to say it's like 100, 200 times a day. And the average adult, like four, if they get to five. That tells you something, but yeah, go ahead. Totally. Oh, I, re I remember just, you know, there are some authors too. I mean, there are, 
Unfortunately, the exceptions prove the rule, but there are authors out there who have spoken to the human connections in the classroom and the ways in which, you know, all of this contrivance about who we are as teachers, you're better off dropping most of that. Uh, a kid farts in the classroom, that's freaking funny. And, and to act like it's not funny is completely inauthentic. On what planet is that not funny? And if you're a person who doesn't think that's funny, well, you're wrong. So my approach to all of this is very much that. And I put myself out there in that way because inevitably someone in your audience is going to think, that guy's wrong. That's bad. Great. Let's have that conversation. I'd love to know why you feel that way. And I'd love to share a little bit more about where I'm coming from so that both of us get to understand more and maybe at the end of it, get to be weird friends. That would be cool. But when it comes to my students, your question about how they respond at the end of the year, I hear this so much and I'm so humbled by it because I'm not alone in this. I'm not the only person who gets this feedback. I get feedback like for the first time I could experience joy in my learning. For the first time I could have fun reading, which I thought was impossible, or I did something I never thought I would do, or I did something I thought specifically that I couldn't do, or I just didn't hate my life for half an hour. I mean, our students are dealing with magnitudes of trauma that you've read the studies in the 50s, this level of stress, anxiety, depression would have someone institutionalized. And just the fact that these human beings, I try to empathize with everyone, I really do. Part of my shtick is to put myself out there so that people can be more of themselves and I can be with them in that. But I'll never know what it's like to be a teenager in 2022, not really. To have so little faith in our institutions, to look at what's happened to just the three branches of our federal government. And it doesn't matter where anyone is on the political spectrum. I may not have liked George Bush Sr. when I was in high school, but I had respect for the office of the president. And I believed that no matter which party won a particular election, I, I had a, a blessing I didn't understand at the time. My mom grew up Democrat. My dad grew up Republican. My grandfather on my dad's side was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And my mom uh, was descended from people who fled the Holocaust in Germany. And so our dinnertime conversations were models for people who lovingly disagreed. You know, my dad grew up in San Francisco when he wasn't moving all over the place with the Air Force. My mom grew up in LA. So we even had Dodgers Giants rivalry. And at the end of it, they still loved each other. So for my students, for anyone's students, for my own children, you know, I've got uh, 12 and a half, just over 16 and 23. And this is a time for all of us to learn our way through, not based on some arcane notion of uh, sit still and raise your hand. You know, the only place that we divide this life into a bell rings and you only think in chemistry, then another bell rings and you pack all your crap, navigate a crowded hallway, and then think in Spanish is school. Everything else is interdisciplinary. Everything else. And why we think we compartmentalize it for kids and think that's gonna get, bring you out kids who are creative, innovative, problem solvers, thinkers on their own. Yeah. No. So, here, so here's the minute marker where I'm gonna dive into open source learning because what really got me wasn't the technology. What really got me were things like, there's a wonderful book called The Medici Effect. I mean, these things are documented, but when you look at 
any problem, any question from an interdisciplinary perspective, life gets not only richer, but the solutions become actually more valuable. The Medici family put people together from different expertises and fields and walks of life because they understood this and they profited by it. So if I look at a cup of tea, I'm looking at ceramics, botany, fluid mechanics, the history of colonialism, every single possible topic you could throw at me. We could align with anything in the curriculum plus a lot. So I started thinking, you know, in the 20th century, we had Waldorf and Montessori and Reggio Emilia. Wherever you think about these things, or if you're an academic rigorist, we had alternatives that pointed to a learner's ability to construct meaning. We don't have anything like that widespread at this point. And we have the single most robust communications revolution in the history of this species. We're living it right now. And because so many of us don't understand it, 50 years plus after the invention and the development of the internet at my alma mater, among other places, we don't have any national awareness campaign, much less a curriculum. And so we are left to our own devices, just as we are when it comes to relationships or sex or anything else that creates a $13 billion self-help industry in this country. So the fact that we're all pointing and clicking and this technology has now influenced our views on everything from our banking to our dating lives, to our politics, I think it's an emergency. Mm -hmm. We are at a point now where we need to ask learners questions about what matters to them. And if they need physics, they're gonna get better anyway if they care about skateboarding and it matters because it's relevant. So pardon the, uh, I, I forgot the question you started me off on that, but interdisciplinary thinking is absolutely at the core of everything I do. So what would you say in layman's terms, in a short brief definition of what open source learning is? Open source learning is the ability to ask a personally relevant big question explore the answer through multiple fields, find the resources that will help you, whether they be material or human or experiential, and curate your journey in ways that enrich your organized thinking and everyone else who comes across it. That was good. I'm glad you said that because I wasn't prepared for that. I just made it up. But I've been thinking about it a long time. But I know it's, it's, well, it's a new, it's going to be a new term for a lot of people who are listening. And, um, but this is what you did in those high schools and you're currently doing, right? Yeah. So at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, I approached my superintendent, a wonderful man. Uh, and we started a conversation. I said, you know, it's not normal for a classroom teacher to approach a superintendent and say, okay, so here's what we're going to do. But the only thing weirder than that would be if I knew what to do and didn't tell you, and you came to me in a couple of years and said, what were you thinking? How come you didn't let me know? So what I said to him was, I would love to be wrong about what I see happening next. But over the next couple of years, I predicted how this was going to go because we didn't have any state or federal policy. We didn't have any training. So for all of the amazing efforts that educators have put out 
And I truly mean them. I mean, I've seen so many wonderful examples, as I'm sure you have too. Um, I mean, it, the resilience, the mm -hmm. the generosity of spirit. Oh, it was amazing. They did things on the fly that, that we'd never seen them do to this day. I, I personally couldn't even be doing like the way they changed so, so quickly with things that they had to learn on the fly. Uh, my hats go off to them. They did incredible things in such a short amount of time. Truly. And at the same time and in the same breath, I'll say that that was not a response to crisis. That was not online learning. That was not virtual learning. That was not distance learning. That was doing the best we could with the tools we had under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that unfortunately fueled a lot of misguided conversations about the role of technology in education, both on the pro side, like it was going to save everybody for every re reason. And on the con side, like, oh, we can only do in-person schooling and that's the only way to learn. So what I proposed was, because my students, we, on a Friday, on March 13th, 2020, we left campus without knowing whether we would be coming back on Monday. So I said to all the students, hey, we may see each other on Monday, we may not, but we don't really know. I do wanna ask you before we go, aside from the fact that I'm sending you home with your journals instead of keeping them for the weekend like I normally do, what's gonna change for us? And they all said, nothing. Nothing. You were probably one of the few in the entire country that nothing would change for. Well, yeah, because all of our course blogs were all intact. They And I, I may not have mentioned this, but every single learner in my tribes create their own websites and curate their own material. And, you know, I'm going to take the opportunity as long as I'm on a podcast, but if you're at a campus and you're using something like Canvas, for example, Canvas is a billions of dollars company that is, uh, it's, it's a brand name for Instructure Holdings, which is a few white guys in Utah who took it private for $2 billion uh, with a, a private equity firm called Toma Bravo, and then took it public for nearly $3 million saying they were going to expand, but really they were just doing debt service. Most of their board is Toma Bravo people. And now they're valued at, I don't know, 4 billion, something like that. That's not based on subscribers. That's based on what do they do with all that data? Where's the transparency? And because students and teachers are not given the choice about which software to use, and they're creating value for someone else, that's intellectual sharecropping. And if we're going to talk about social justice and you know racial and sexual and any other sort of equity it's not good enough just to talk about the terms in which people refer to one another as epithets it's really important to talk about some of these systemic issues so from 2006 i had students on their own propositioning which software was best qualified to tell their story so whether that was Blogger or WordPress or Pinterest or whatever, now, because so many of these companies have gotten so good at extracting value, even though you think you're using the stuff for free and you're really the product, uh, we've been developing open source software that we govern that is linked to things in the Fediverse and not the Profitverse. So, you know, one of the things that comes up for me around all of this is you can peel the onion back to whichever layer suits you. And that can be interpersonal, that can be technological. Um, 
but when I proposed doing a virtual academy, I said, we can do this from anywhere in the world. And I've been doing it because the students already have their websites. We rolled through from March to June because the students did not want to take spring break. They wanted the continuity and the connection. And that was two years in a row in 20 and 21, both. Um, unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. We, I, I discovered in the Los Angeles Times uh, in the spring of 2020 that most of what we know about indigenous Mesoamerica was created by people in a monastery during a pandemic 500 years ago. And so I was like, bitchin', let's write a book. And we basically, it was tales from high school during the pandemic because it's hard for most of us to realize being so challenged by the moment but it's not going to be too long before this generation has kids who look back and say, whoa, wait, so you were in school or you were teaching during the pandemic, during the Trump presidency, during this big shift, during the January 6th, whatever we're calling it, but it was an insurrection, just so we're clear. What was that like? And most people don't know what they ate yesterday without writing it down somewhere. So this was all learning in real time. Mm. Uh, long story short, for the last 16 months or so, I've been running a virtual academy, the Open Source Learning Academy for the Santa Maria Joint Union High School District um, from my home in Palm Springs. And I, you know, due to the wonderful politics of collective bargaining, et cetera, I made it easy on everybody by transitioning from uh, teacher in title to education consultant, which also enables me to help anybody else who wants it. But this is a model now that can be replicated and I'm giving it away because I really believe that post-pandemic, and we're getting to a point where more people are thinking their way toward what happens next, rightly so. But high school and middle school were never optimal places for learning. Look at the dropout rate. We can't even get them to stay in, let alone like what they're doing when they're there. Yeah. And, and they, they are a viable alternative. I, I don't believe in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, look at the real estate, the gyms, the, the labs. We, we've got a lot of infrastructure that is, and, and people who care. And there's a lot of good in that. So I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. It's not all good or all bad. But there are a lot of people who simply were not being served. Their needs were not being met. So it could have been physical. It could have been mental well-being. It could have been bullying. It could have been any one of a number, family obligations, working schedules. Um, we now have the capacity to flex and meet people on their fields in ways that not only support their learning, but also create the kinds of bonds that every school vision statement pretends to aspire to. Oh, true. Oh, my right? gosh. You're you know, absolutely right. We have a safe campus. No, you don't. We prepare people for 21st century learning. Nah. -uh. We support all kids, <laughs> all kids learn. Let's try to have them all show up first. Yeah. So this, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just gonna say, it's, it's easy to throw stones. Yeah. And that's why I continue to do the work because I don't ever wanna be a person who, it, it's so easy to be a critic. It is. And I yell at my TV as much as anybody else. But I also believe in putting ourselves out there because that's my integrity. So mm -hmm. I make my mistakes out loud. I, I make my course comments out loud because I, that's part of what I'm trying to create for people. Mm -hmm. If we don't have, you know, if you have a lockstep 
environment where people are behaving uniformly, you're not going to know. I would much rather somebody say the N-word than, and follow me on this because that's a loaded comment, but I would much rather someone say it out loud than have it in mind and say the polite thing. Or say it behind people's backs or say it when no one's listening and it's happening, but then it's not open and you think everything is one way and it's not. Yeah. The, the greatest impact, I used to teach First Amendment law at UCLA. And one of the things that struck me the most about the First Amendment, my favorite reason for the First Amendment isn't freedom of expression or the press or religion or assembly. My favorite reason for the First Amendment is because it makes people comfortable to reveal themselves for who they truly are. And if they're a person who at heart has racist beliefs or sexist beliefs or intolerance of any kind or ignorance of any kind, what a wonderful opportunity for a conversation to help inform each other and lift each other up and get better. And I really do come to this from that spirit. So anyone could take this open source learning idea and kind of infuse it into their, their actual education system already here, right, currently? Yep. But have you seen it done at the elementary level yet? Yeah, I have in, in small groups and in classes. Um, so every campus has at least a couple teachers who don't put a bullseye on themselves at faculty meetings. All they do is go into their classrooms and make magic. Shut the door. And at times you are the only one in there with your kids. Right. And so think of it this way, open source learning. And I say this with um, Zolzaya Dan Dinsern was the young man who invited me to Mongolia and I'll never forget him. But um, one of the things that I learned about Buddhism is that it can coexist with anything. Uh, you can be a Buddhist and a Catholic, uh, a Buddhist and a Zoroastrian, a Buddhist and a Jew, whatever your flavors. So open source learning is something that can be practiced even in an environment that is completely traditional and strict about it. So imagine that you're in an algebra class with a pedantic, old school, academic rigor. This is the way it's done and you must think this way. And I'll tell you why I hate math stories some other time, but because of the teacher, it was the teacher, wasn't it? It was, it was my seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Fought. If she's uh -huh. still alive and she hears this, I hate you. And my reason is super simple. I got a hundred percent on tests and she accused me of cheating and brought me in at lunch and made me leave all my things at the door and gave me her own problems. And I did the problems five minutes later, had them all right. Didn't show my work. She accused me of cheating again, as if that were somehow physically possible, just because I wasn't thinking about it the way she wanted me to think about it. Now, look, I don't really- Or show the work like she wanted you to show. Right. So as an adult, I can empathize with, I mean, I hope she was doing what she thought was a good idea. I'm sure she was. But mandating how a person thinks is not a question of helping them. That's a question of controlling them. And I was right to resist that. I'm super happy with my decision, you know, it's 40 years ago. Um, but when I think about a teacher like that in today's classroom, so Karin walks in and that class says, to succeed in this class, you must do likewise. And there is no choice about it. Well, you can still have your own lived experience of that learning and you can still create a website and you can still reach out for additional perspectives or people. And you can still curate that in a way that contributes value to someone else's understanding. And you can still trade on that value for job opportunities or admissions or scholarships. So 
to me, the value in this, and I'm going to head off your next question, I'm imagining, because I was going to do a fancy landing page for this, and I was going to have like a super cool, you know, for Karin's listeners, here's your guide to whatever. And rather than just doing like an email marketing campaign around this podcast, your listeners can send me an email and I'll send them free answers to help them set things up and resources to set things up. Whether it's, I had a friend who's a Silicon Valley executive who a few months back said, hey, look, I never thought about it this way, but can we do open source learning as a personal path for me because I really want to get expert in Web3? And I said, sure. And we set it up for him personally. So whether you're a person who is on a learning journey, whether you are a parent who could be better, if you're an educator who's trying to systematically implement something better or different on your campus or in your community, or you're an employer in an organization who thinks, you know, whether it's succession or strategy or team building, we can transfer knowledge in ways that are much more effective and get people engaged so that it becomes self-sustaining. Yeah, we can do that. And everybody listening to this can just email me at david at davidpreston.net or just go to my website and hit the contact form and I'll be happy to answer. Mention Karin's name though. Thank you, David. And I will put those uh, that information in the description notes of this episode. And I'm going to have to have you back on because I know this has already taken us some time already, but um, there's so much around this. And it's a, pa a subject that I'm passionate about because you and I have spoken um, several times and knowing our education system is not meeting the needs, the true needs of kids, all kids. And, and I think all kids should be included in that um, meeting their need and setting them on a path where they can be creative and, and graduate as problem solvers. And we should be the country with the number one, um, with creativity and new, new, new things being created. Like why not? Why we should be able to get back there. And that's what just fires me up and excites me. So thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Karen, I always love talking to you. I love the energy that you bring to all of this. I imagine the people at your school feel just as lucky. And I'm super excited to hear about uh, your life coaching and all the directions you're taking this. So thank you very much for having me. Hey there, it's Karen. I hope that you're enjoying the show. And by the way, if you're a mom who wants to learn how to help your child when they're struggling behaviorally or facing challenges in school, get started today by getting my free short video course, Three Steps to Happy Healthy Kids at www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in learning how to have a happy, healthy life with your kids. So head on over to www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video and grab your free gift today. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember, don't worry, be happy.